Well, I want to start uh, this morning with a question, and uh, kind of an uncomfortable one, but uh, I tend to make things awkward if you give me long enough. Uh, what is a sinner? What is a sinner? It's a great way to start a sermon, right? Uh, welcome to church. I figure if you can't talk about something like sin in a place called real life, then I'm not exactly sure what you can talk about. Um, so what is a sinner? Maybe the right question would be, who is a sinner? Uh, somebody who commits big sins? Or is a sinner somebody who just kind of lets one squeak out by accident? Is that what a sinner is? Uh, are there categories for sin? Are there some sins that, uh, that rank higher than others in their severity and different things like that? Uh, is somebody who, sin who is a sinner a person who the majority of people think that what they did was wrong? Is that what makes somebody a sinner? How many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? Like if I lied once, does that make me a liar? I don't know. So what is a sinner? Who is a sinner? Maybe a better even question is, what makes somebody not a sinner? What makes somebody not a sinner? If you go to our church website, on the very front page, we're going to be redoing our, our website before too long, but on the very front page it says this, a church you can relate to. The second sentence is, we don't care how you dress, how many tattoos you have, or who you voted for. And then the third sentence, we are a church full of broken, imperfect people with every kind of story imaginable, and we're saving a seat for you. So I think we've, this is just me, I think we've kind of moved past the whole, we don't care how you dress tattoo thing. We probably don't even need to address that stuff anymore. But the third sentence is the one that kind of sticks out to me, and I want to say it again. We are a church full of broken imperfect people with every kind of story imaginable. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus, uh, he said this, the son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, the religious leaders say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors. He's a friend of sinners, sinners. The partiers, he's with the drunks, even the tax collectors who at the end of the day were total sellouts to their own people. Uh, he's friends and, and associates with all of those people, imperfect people, broken people, just like our website says, okay, with all kinds of stories. But, but, we are midway through this Encounters with Jesus series as we march our way towards Easter, and uh, every encounter leads to a decision, and up front, I want to share with you right here at the beginning the decision that we're looking at today. And uh, every sinner that you can think of, including the one in the passage that we're about to look at, and including the one that's occupying the seat you're sitting in right now, every sinner is faced with the same decision when they encounter Jesus, and the decision is to go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Now, you might notice, if you have a Bible and you're, you're looking at this passage uh, from John chapter 8, it's verses 1 through 11, if you're looking at that passage... You might have an asterisk there, or there might be a little notation or a mark that, that connotates something. And the reason that that's there is the early uh, manuscript writers tended to remove this from Scripture. You thought maybe manipulating Scripture was a modern thing. No, they've been doing this for millennia. <laughs> 
But, but the early manuscript writers really struggled with keeping this particular story in the Gospel of John as it was given to them for a very specific reason. Uh, there was a concern that if people read this and just treated it at face value and didn't dig any deeper, that they would be overlooking sin. That somehow they would just justify certain behaviors, including adultery, as we're going to see here in, in just a moment. So as you're reading this passage, there's a real tension that's a part of this passage. Uh, it, it forces you, if you dig deep into this scripture, uh, to make choices, to make decisions. And uh, so what I want to do this morning is I, I just want to set the stage for us. And then I want to talk about three different lenses that we need to look at this passage through. So let me set the stage uh, there's, a, there's been a festival. There's all these festivals that happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus had been there for a festival. The festival's now over, okay? And the religious leaders who kept kind of getting shamed by Jesus just a little bit, and they were upset with him because he, he was messing with their church stuff. And uh, he was kind of stealing some of their power and, and their influence. And people were flocking to Jesus left and right. And so they, they tried to come up with a plan. They figured, listen, if we can somehow frame him or catch him saying something that's really going to discredit him, that's going to turn the power back into our department, and, and we'll be able to get what we're losing. As long as Jesus is around, he's, we're losing influence, we're losing power, and uh, we've got to do something to fix this, to squash this movement that's really started. And so they found, these religious leaders found what they thought was the absolute perfect scenario. This is just a perfect situation to frame Jesus. It starts in John chapter 8. You can see it in verses 3 through 6. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. That's really important. She's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, and they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. All right, let's stop there. So this woman has been drugged. She's been drugged through the crowd. And there's a lot of screaming and yelling. There's probably cursing. Uh, this woman has probably been struck multiple times by the time she's kind of tossed into the gravel and into the dirt in front of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we understand something. This woman is guilty. She's guilty. Okay, we have no reason to believe in this scripture or the way Jesus treats it that she's not. So, so this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And with that said, there is this real contrast taking place. And for us to make the decision that we talked about earlier, for us to go and sin no more, you need to look at these through this situation through these different lenses. And the first lens that we're going to look at this through is the lens of the condemners. The lens of the condemners. So these guys, they literally woke up angry because Jesus, and they've got to figure out how they're going to trap him. So they literally wake up and they're like, let's find a sinner. They didn't look in the mirror, but they decided, hey, let's go find a sinner. You remember Jerry? Yeah, Jerry. We all know what Jerry's been doing. I bet if we go over to Jerry's house, okay, so we're going to wake up today and we're going to go find a sinner. Now, here's how this works. The law of Moses did say that adulterers needed to be stoned, okay? So 
I don't know what you have in your mind. In fact, if you watch the movie The Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson, they all have these pretty small rocks. I kind of think he, he dropped the ball with that one. The rocks were generally big enough not to kill somebody immediately, but to rip flesh off and to really cause a lot of physical pain and harm. They would eventually die from their stoning, but they wanted it to take time. They wanted it to, to mean something, to matter. And so these are fairly good-sized chunks of rock, usually with ragged edges to rip flesh. Okay. So this is the punishment. That's the scene that we have. So here's the deal. Rome is the government in power. Okay, so we have this dichotomy taking place, this, this competing narrative. So here's the catch. If Jesus said, yep, stoner, he'd be going against the government because the government of Rome said the only ones that could carry out those kinds of execution orders were Romans. And so if Jesus said, yeah, the law of Moses says stoner, he'd be going against the government. And there's a lot of passages that talk about how we shouldn't be doing that, going against the government that the authorities have been put in place. We've been quoting those verses for the last several months probably. So uh, that those, those verses are there. The flip side of this is if, if he says, yeah, don't stone her, now he's going against biblical law. He's going against the very framework that these Pharisees had built their religion around, the law of Moses. So it's a catch-22. Do you see what they did there? So they've caught him now. He's, his hand is being forced. Which, which card are you going to play right now, Jesus? Because either one, we've got you. We've got you. All right. So I ask questions all the time. I started with a question, didn't I? Uh, all you have to do is ask our staff. I ask so many questions. Questions. Oh, here comes Rich. He's got another question. I ask questions all the time. I have one giant question in this passage. Any guesses what it is? Where's the dude? Where's the guy? Okay, so I know that in the last couple of messages and stuff, and we've talked a little bit about the culture of that day and that it was very oppressive towards women. It was a shame and a guilt-based culture. Uh, women had very, very, very little value However, if you were men of a certain ethnicity and a certain influence, you had all kinds of value. You could do anything pretty much that you wanted, but as a female, you found yourself really on the short end of the stick. But still, doesn't this thing take two people? It takes two people. So where's the dude? That makes me start to ask other questions. Like, okay, was this a buddy of these guys? How did they know where to go to find this woman? I mean, it's, I start asking all kinds of questions. Here's the problem with that. I start getting wrapped up in those questions, and I miss the forest for the trees, okay? And we can dwell on some of those inconsistencies, but the word caught, the word caught is a really important word in this, this passage. Translated, it translates to the word ensnare. And it kind of has underlying connotations of, of addiction, really. It's the idea that there is something that I should be saying no to. I know that if I say yes to it, there are ramifications. I know what the result of saying yes is going to be. I know what some of the consequences of saying yes is going to be. Uh, and it's this idea that, man, it's just got to draw on me and I'm pulled towards it. And I know, I know, 
that if I do this, I know if I say yes, I know that if I imbibe or if I do whatever I'm going to do, I know the guilt that's going to come from that. I know, I know the shame that's going to come from that, but it's so tempting and all of a sudden we grab it and we take it and you take the bait and you become then ensnared by it. You become trapped in it. We sang a song earlier. I was a prisoner, but I'm not a prisoner anymore. We're a prisoner of sin, but now I've been set free. Okay, and it's this idea that you've been trapped in, in a sense. Now listen closely. That entrapment is not a mistake. We didn't like go, oops, I fell. It's not a mistake. And I've done this before, and I know a lot of people have done this. We, we commit some kind of a sin, and we say, man, I made a big mistake. No, we made a decision. A mistake is, everybody knows Chandra. Everybody loves Chandra, our director of operations. Chandra's name is Chandra, not Chandra. And if I go around saying, oh, Chandra is so amazing, that's a mistake, right? Chandra is her name. But if I go around saying, yeah, Chandra, <laughs> that's a decision, right? To use her name in a, in a wrong way. And decisions have consequences. I don't know why I thought about this when I was writing this a couple weeks ago, but um, <laughs> way back, and I can tell you the exact date, it was August 12th, 1990. That's scary. August 12th, 1990 was the day after I turned 16. So it was the day after I got my driver's license, and my buddy, Larry Wilson, showed up at my house in, um, in his Camaro. And uh, you can kind of see where this is going. So He's like, hey, you want to go for a ride? So I said, yeah, let's go for a ride. So we go for a ride, and we're out on this old country road, and uh, it had just got done raining, and uh, we're out there. He's like, hey, you want to drive? I'm like, well, pff, I have my driver's license. I'm clearly qualified to drive this vehicle. And so we trade places. Now, that was a dumb decision on his part, okay? <laughs> a decision and a mistake all wrapped up in one. But here I go, I slip over, and I'm tooling along on this road, and I know about a half a mile ahead of me, there's like a total left turn. I mean, it's just one of those old country roads, just you turn left. And, I, and I'm thinking, I bet that I could just gun this thing and just fishtail it around this corner. And I learned to drive on a 1980, I think it was seven, Ford Aerostar minivan. So... I had no idea what I was doing. But I get in this car. I'm like, hey, man, can I punch it? And Larry's like, yeah, punch it. And so here we go, and I'm, I'm going fast. And as soon as I came close to that curb, I hit the accelerator as hard as I could and just whipped that thing. Immediately did a 360, launched into the bean field, did another 360 and panicked. So I hit the gas again, and I went through the culvert and came back out on the street, did another 360, and finally stopped. I put it in park and immediately got out. And we looked, and sure enough, coming out of that culvert, I drugged the, the left quarter panel, and it, it bent it up. I thought, oh. And so I made not a mistake. I made a bad decision. And decisions have consequences. And so you can either face the consequences or try to hide stuff so you don't face the consequences, or you immediately drive to Rich Doring's house, you pull your wallet out and the driver's license and walk in the door and say, Dad, here's my license, which is exactly what I did. And then I had to go to Larry Wilson's dad and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to figure out what I've got to do to pay for this. I apologize, will you forgive me? 
And that thus became my illustrious career, began my illustrious career at the Washington Family Restaurant as a busboy and a dishwasher. Decisions have consequences, right? Decisions have consequences. And that, that example is kind of silly, but sin is really no different. It's not different at all. And this woman's actions, this woman's actions had probably destroyed relationships. So had the dudes, right? But, but this woman is who we're talking about. The actions destroyed relationships, broke things, caused a death of sorts. But there's an added problem on top of this. It doesn't just affect horizontal stuff. It affects vertical stuff. Sin is against the very nature and the character of God. Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of our sin, what our sin earns us, those decisions that we make, it earns us death. That's the wage of sin. Eternal separation from God. This ensnarement that we find ourselves in. And so through the lens of the condemner, condemners that day, it was their job to make sure that the correct wages of sin were, were laid out. And that's what they were there to do. But then you have Jesus. And you have the lens of the compassionate. You've ever been scrolling through social media and you run into videos and there's a video of an animal rescue. Have you ever seen these videos of animal rescues on social media or Facebook? And uh, I saw one a couple weeks ago. There was a, a, almost a baby seal that had been stuck in a fishing net. And so the rescuer was pulling the fishing net in and, and freeing the baby seal. And, of course, the seal didn't know what was going on. It was, thought it was going to be killed. And they were cutting the net and everything to set this baby seal free. I'm a total softy. I don't watch those videos in front of my wife because... <laughs> I'm afraid of what she's going to say. Um, now, there's a flip side to that scenario. What happens if the rescuer doesn't pull the net in and free the seal from that ensnarement, from that trap? The end result is death. It's death. Somebody needs to have compassion enough to free the person or the thing from the trap that they're in. This is really important because that is the core of Jesus-like compassion. Jesus-like compassion. Yes, sin is an absolutely horrible thing. People sin by choice. It causes tons and tons of damage. But Jesus, as he's looking at us in our sin, as he's looking at this woman in her sin, he sees more than just somebody who is a sinner. He sees somebody who's been trapped in their sin. They're ensnared. They're not free. They're in bondage because of sin. They're stuck. So with all eyes on her, Jesus had compassion, not because she was caught by her accusers, but because she was caught up in sin. She was trapped. It was a prison of her own choosing, but it was a prison that she was powerless in her own to, to break free from. So what does Jesus do? John 8, 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is the only time that's recorded that, that Jesus wrote anything down. And nobody pulled out their phone to take a picture. I can't believe it. Okay. So we have no idea 
what Jesus wrote in the ground. Do you have an idea? What, what do you think that Jesus wrote? Anybody? What do, you th- what do you guys think that Jesus wrote? Anybody have an idea? Forgiveness. That's good. Forgiven. Ooh, I like that. Anybody else? What do you think Jesus wrote? The names of those guys, maybe? Nice. So there's this story in the Old Testament uh, that every single religious leader standing there would have memorized when they were a child from the book of Daniel. And it's about a king, King Belshazzar, Belshazzar and uh, he's just a horrible guy. And so he's throwing this party, and uh, this is like a frat party on steroids. And uh, it's got all kinds of things going on that you can imagine and stuff you probably shouldn't. So it's just this, it's just this crazy, crazy party he's throwing. Well, he gets this idea, because he's so important and he thinks so highly of himself, he gets this idea that somebody, one of his servants, needs to go to the temple in Jerusalem and bring out the sacred vessels, these sacred vessels that have been a part of, of, of worship of the one true God for so long. Bring those sacred vessels into this party. We're going to pour our stuff in it, and I'm going to drink from these because I'm, I'm the guy, right? This, I'm going to show God who's really God, and I'm going to drink from these sacred vessels. Immediately, this hand shows up, like an apparition, and writes into the plaster on the wall where this party is taking place. And these are the words that show up. Mene, mene, Tekel Ufarsin. How many of you think I pronounced that right? I don't know if I did. Okay. Sounds right to me. I don't speak Persian, which is the language that that is. And so neither did the king. So he immediately sends for Daniel to come in and tell him what this says, interpret this for him. This is what Daniel says that these words mean to this king. Your time is up. You've been weighed, you've been balanced, and you don't make the cut. You can go now. I like that. There's a part of me that wants to think, and there's some scholars that actually think that these two stories are related, that that's what Jesus wrote in the dirt in front of these men. You can go now. You've been weighed, and those rocks that you have in your hand that are so easy to throw, you ought to be throwing them at each other. You can go now. You're being replaced. That's exactly what that means. And so whatever the case was, whatever was written in the dirt, the oldest maybe went first, maybe the one who measured and weighed most wanting, uh, suddenly remembered he had somebody else, he had somewhere else he had to be. And there was another guy, maybe he heard his wife calling him. Maybe there was another guy, he's late for church. Whatever the case was, they all just kind of disappear. One by one, until nobody was left, until it was just Jesus and the sinner. The sinner. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now, go, and from now on, sin no more. This right here is why early writers really struggled to keep this in the Gospel of John. Um, They knew human nature, and I think we do too. Human nature seeks to justify ourselves. 
compare ourselves. You know, well, I've never done A, B, and C. I mean, I'm not like those people who do those things. So I'm not that bad. We like to weigh ourselves in the balance, right? We like to find out if we're wanting, and to do that, we usually find somebody else who's more wanting than we are, who's a little less balanced than we are, and there's no shortage of people like that, okay? We tend to self-justify ourselves. Yeah, I know I've done those things, but look at what I'm doing here. Look at, look at this life up here. Isn't that okay? So, I, you know, we start trying to justify ourselves. They understood the nature of us, all of us. But make no mistake, Jesus in this scenario did not minimize sin. He did not minimize her sin. Adultery, just like any other sin, causes brokenness. It causes relational death. It causes spiritual death. But here in this situation, we see something that is so, so hard to do. But when we experience it, it's almost indescribable. It's, it's, it just seems so, so different. It stirs something in us. When we see this done, it, stir, it stirs something in me. It's compassion without condoning. And it's so hard. This gives me huge pause. Uh, in an act of compassion, watch the body language. He takes himself, Jesus takes himself and inserts himself between the accusers and the accused. You see what he does? He puts himself in the gap between. Listen to the language. It's almost like he sacrifices himself, positions himself to take the accusations upon himself. And then when they left, he even has more words of compassion. I don't condemn you either. He came to her in her brokenness. But, but. Now, I applaud us as a church for embracing the posture of Jesus. I think that that's hugely important. Uh, it doesn't matter what your story is, and it doesn't. You understand that? It does not matter what your story is. You are welcome. There's a hand being extended to you. We are broken people. Just like our website says, we are a broken people. We are a bunch of imperfect people with all kinds of stories. But, but, Jesus also in compassion loves us enough that if we will let him, he will walk with us in grace to live out this forgiven life in a way that will honor him. He comes alongside of us and changes our story. So who is this woman? Who is a sinner? We are. You and I are this woman. Uh, when you see this through the lens of the sinner, it's a hopeless situation. She's been caught. She's been caught. That's just all there is to it. She's been caught. This is the consequence. And I know that you and I are still getting to know each other, but is it okay if I just tell you the truth right now? <laughs> is that okay? Uh, it's probably not tweetable. hope that's all right. Sin breaks, sin steals, sin destroys, sin damages, sin hurts. It's painful. Sin does all of those things. And yet this sacrificial 
compassionate God loves us too much to let that brokenness define our story. He loves us too much to do that. He writes for us a completely different story. Uh, this, this, this sin condemns us no differently than how that woman viewed her situation. The actions led to the penalty of sin. The only time the story changes, though, the only time the story changes for us from brokenness to wholeness is when somehow the penalty of sin is intercepted. When somehow something or someone steps into the gap and takes what's directed at us. And then we receive what's been done for us. He puts himself in the gap. Almost as if somebody just inserts themselves in our story. I'm so thankful that in 1992, even in, in moments since 1992, Jesus had compassion for me because I was trapped in sin. I was ensnared. I was caught in sin. I'm thankful that also in that compassion... He changes my story and he challenges me to go now. Go. Go and sin no more. I'm thankful that as a husband, I'm thankful that as a father, as a pastor, not only does he show compassion and challenge me to continue to go and sin no more, he starts doing things like putting people in my life who are trying to do the same thing too, who come alongside of me and challenge me. You point me back to the word of God, saying there's more, Rich. There's more. He gives us Holy Spirit to, get, to guide us and to fill us, to lead us. And as with all the other messages in this series, there's generally more than one decision. Yes, the decision that we need to make is, yeah, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. But there's other ones. You know, if you look through the lens of the condemners in this story, I think the message is really simple. The decision is never to forget as we sometimes stand with that rock in our hand the depths that Jesus went to to forgive me of my sin. Man, if we don't live in a world where it's easy to throw rocks, I don't know what we live in right now. I mean, it's like a profession now to throw rocks. And there are Christians all over the planet justifying it. We just throw rocks. Throwing rocks is easy. Owning your own sin, though, not so much. Not so much. Of course, when you see through the lens of compassion, what you're doing is you're looking through the eyes of Jesus in the situation, seeing people through Jesus' eyes to decide not to see somebody in their brokenness and sin as the totality of their story, the totality. I met somebody this last week, and, and as I've been praying for that person, my prayer is that that person would understand that the situation they're in is not who they are. It's not the end. That's not the totality of who God has made them to be. We need to see people that way too. That Christ would free somebody in that brokenness, maybe even ourselves. But today, is, as we kind of close this, I just want to remind us of the lens of this sinner who in a moment of hopelessness, and it was hopeless, had someone compassionate enough to stand in the gap but also loved enough to push her in the direction of a new story, a new one. In two weeks, we do have the privilege of celebrating baptisms right here, right in front of me, as we witness the baptism of a number of people at real life. I'm excited about that. Uh, I really am. There's going to be another opportunity in the fall, and we're going to kind of build up to that as well. 
But uh, these are kind of my last final pushes. Yes, I'll be making a beeline over to the, the cry room to, to walk through a, a course. If you're interested, come listen. If you've not filled out one of those cards yet and you feel like, yeah, this is it, uh, I want to encourage you to do that. We're not going to do kind of on-the-spot ones if somebody stands up and says, hey, I want to get baptized today too. Uh, we, need to, we need to do this in an orderly way. And so I just want to encourage you, if God's just been laying it on your heart, or if you, even if you just have questions or just want to learn more about it, just pop in there 20 minutes and we'll talk. But I just want to encourage you, what we are doing when we do this, when we baptize, even when we worship on a Sunday morning, we are celebrating this idea that somehow we move from stories of brokenness to stories of newness, of wholeness, of redemption. But the challenge is always going to be there for us to go and sin no more. Now, that probably introduces other questions. So does that mean I can never sin again? Okay. Uh, what, what does that mean? What is sanctification? What is this? What is that? I mean, all these other questions. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, we talk about that. But here's the most important thing I can tell you. Uh, if you commit your heart and tune your heart to go and sin no more, I can guarantee you God's going to come right alongside of you. He's going to fill you with his spirit. He doesn't just save us and leave us to our own devices. This isn't up to you and me. This is up to us abiding in him and allowing him to live his life in us and through us. And so I want to challenge you to continue to do that. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray. Father, we just uh, really just stand here today as recipients of your incredible great grace. You've loved us with an everlasting love. And Father, I just, I think so many times of how I've been on the ground accused. I've been on the ground for a reason. But yet sometimes I look for other reasons that I'm on the ground other than the fact that I've done it. I've done it. Even in those moments, you've interceded on my behalf. You've injected yourself into this story that I write and you turn it into a God story. One in which there is wholeness for anybody who finds himself in the most broken situation they could ever think of. There is a future. There is a hope. There is a plan. So Father, I pray for all of us today that we would understand there is a story being written. And Father, uh, when we take the pen into our own hands, it never ends well. So we just give that up today. We put ourselves in your hands, and as we continue in this series, Father, I pray that as we grow closer and closer to Easter, celebrating life, the resurrection of your Son, that, Father, we would experience our own resurrections, that we would be redeemed from some of the things that we're ensnared in, that we're trapped in. We give those things to you today, and we love you. What an awesome privilege it is to be the church, to be the bride of Christ, to be, Father, called to go forth and bear your message to the world that we live in. What an incredible opportunity and incredible day. So Father, help us to be the church that you desire for us to be. We love you. It is in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you again for being here today. And I hope to see you tonight. We're going to be online too tonight as well. So thanks.